Welcome everyone to another edition of Kiwi Talks. My guest today uh, has a PhD in biochemistry. He's a spokesman for gene editing and he's also an MP for the top party. I'd like to welcome Dr. Ben Peters. How are you doing? Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Reese. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very keen to talk about some uh, gene editing. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is something that I'm excited by and terrified by at the same time. I think some people totally think, appropriate. <laughs> yeah, because I think some people think of gene editing and their their thoughts go to something like Jurassic Park. Like, oh, they're going to use that to make dinosaurs. Obviously, mm. it mm. it's not quite like that. I'm, I'm no, sure. No, unfortunately, <laughs> dinosaurs went extinct a little too long ago. Uh, the best projects we have on that are woolly mammoths. Um, there was a concerted effort a while yeah. ago in Russia. Uh, to try and bring back the woolly mammoth but um that is uh not exactly the applications we're hoping for in new zealand and definitely <laughs> not where our policy is uh, aimed at since we're on the topic of the woolly mammoth how feasible mm. would that actually be like right so reasonably uh, there, there's a couple tricky parts right um the the, the most obvious hurdle is that if it did work where would you put one and how would you feed it? Um, right, so like, like woolly mammoths are not easy beasts to care for. And then working back from there, uh, if you had successfully recreated its genome, you've got that into an egg, how are you going to gestate that, right? So elephants, we presume are similar, but if they're not, then that's the next place where it will fall down or that kind of that last hurdle. Going back even further, is it even possible to recreate its genome? Kind of. And we could probably create something that was woolly and mammoth-like, whether it would be a genuine true woolly mammoth is mm, probably not. There's kind of the, the half-life of DNA uh, just preserved in permafrost is kind of right at the edges of where um, woolly mammoth DNA is at. So with more modern sequencing technologies, we're getting closer to knowing what that was is. Um, I'd say we're still probably maybe 10 to 20 years away from having the technology to actually then recreate that genome um, and then maybe implant it. So I think like technically it would be at the very edge of what is possible, um, but it'll be very, very technically challenging. And I don't think we would uh, see it. We might see it in our lifetime, someone trying it because there's always the occasional person who, who's very keen and finds a some rich person that, that wants to take that on as their pet project. I'm, I'm sure uh, Elon Musk might go after genetic engineering after he's finished space engineering. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of project is, is one of those really, it captures the imagination, but um, it, it's really at the edge of what may or may not be possible. And I think it would still rest upon finding better preserved samples than we currently have. Right. And with if you're editing, say, an animal or the woolly mammoth in this case, you'd have to do a lot of trial and error first, right? Otherwise you couldn't yeah. do it with like some weird inverted, yeah, distorted um, animal. Th th that would definitely be what would happen a lot along the way. So you'd also have to get ethics approvals. Uh, and I think they would be declined in a, <laughs> uh, I'd say in most countries, I can't speak for Russia. Um, and and I, we don't really want to go into geopolitics of that, but um, I think they've got a little more liberal uh, laws around um, yeah, the ethics of experiments over there. Yeah. So let's get into gene editing. So can you elaborate on exactly what it is? 
I can. So gene editing is specifically like a little category within the overarching genetic modification engineering stuff. Um, when we were talking about gene editing, we're talking about a single gene and making small changes to that gene. Um, usually it's a, it's a correction to it. So if you've got a diseased version um, or, or a gene that's causing a disease, you might go in and just correct the little bit that's wrong, and then you have a healthy copy, uh, and that kind of gene editing is used in gene therapies. Um, or you might want to turn a gene off um, that is causing harm, or you might want to tweak a gene to make it slightly better, um, and then you might have you know, better crops, or you might have um, yeah, just a wide range of applications that you can use there. Um, I think there's some interests around environmental uses, so we can break down plastics by making enzymes a little bit better. So gene editing is just this, making little changes to what's already there. Um, in the broader picture, we have genetic modification, which includes everything from putting whole new genes that have never existed before, or taking genes from one particular animal or plant and putting them into a different animal and plant, and often completely ignoring any kind of kingdom boundaries between them. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the big scope of it, is you can kind of do anything uh, with genetics. Um, and within that, what TOP's hoping to do is just allow a little bit more clarity and consistency around those changes. So if we have an edit um, to a gene that we've seen in other plants and we just want to recreate it in this particular plant, then we think that level should be allowed because you could get there anyway if you spent the time and decades of plant breeding. And so we think those shortcuts still need to go through some uh, regulatory process regulatory process, but it should be very clear and consistent to how it will be treated. Um, the current system doesn't really allow for that. And so that's what we're hoping. Um, sorry if I've, I've probably rushed ahead quite a lot there. No, but no, 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 yeah, no. So, it's okay. So, it's okay. Um, yeah, that, that's our, our gene editing for us is that, that light end of tweaking what's already in nature um, and using making it slightly more suitable for our changing environment. So what do you define as nature, though? Are we talking Ooh, like stuff? I just, love this. Yeah. So are you talking just grass? Are you talking animals, like human yeah, beings? Yeah. So um, on, on the, the, the most specific application of that question, what I'm talking about with nature uh, is anything except for uh, human beings, reproductive stuff, right? So yes, human beings who are adults, um, in terms of gene therapies, um, they're actually currently going on. So there's some really interesting cancer treatments where they will, uh, it's called CAR-T um, immunotherapy, um, where they'll take out uh, immune cells from your body, they'll modify them to make them responsive to the specific cancer that you have, and then they'll put them back in. Um, and so this is a form of um, genetic modification. Under our law, New Zealand law, it doesn't actually count um, as genetically modified because our law specifically excludes humans, um, although human cells can be genetically modified. So our, our law is really weird in that sense, which is part of why I've in top really want to update it. So it's a bit more, bit more consistent, makes a bit more sense to the layperson. Um, but yeah, in terms of what is natural, I find fascinating as a broader question um, because why are humans often excluded from what is natural, right? So if, if I do something in the lab, right, I make, I, I take a fish gene, I put it in a tomato, people will say that's unnatural, right? Because mm. normally a fish would never come in contact with a tomato, right? That just doesn't happen. But the only reason it has is because I have put it in place 
which then means that I am in some way unnatural. And I just, as a, as a philosophical question, I love it because as soon as you start teasing into that, it gets quite tricky to call something natural or unnatural, um, even though it's quite an emotive and evocative kind of uh, statement to make, you know, like that's, that's unnatural. It's like, can it be? Is it possible to have something unnatural? Yeah, that's well, just my, I... my sense, my thoughts there. Well, I think quite a lot of people have different analogies or different uh, mm. things that they consider to be natural and unnatural. Mm. And I suppose the line sometimes blurs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very true. I guess it's also been used societally um, quite frequently to, to make outcasts of people who have been considered unnatural um, for whatever reason. Um, and, and so I think sometimes breaking down our presumptions about nature can actually be quite good for society as a whole to go actually nature's messy and it's diverse and there's lots of things going on um you know the, the things that we expect from nature are not always the way that it is um, but yeah. i think this is probably tangenting away into a slightly <laughs> deeper philosophical territory uh, in terms of uh, our applications of gene editing um Definitely, we see applications within um, plants um, and within some animals. The, the smaller changes that we'd love to see um, really kind of championed are things like allowing uh, plant breeders in New Zealand to make small changes to our plants within their own species um, that will allow for adaption to climate change that we're seeing, um, adaption to you know, salt tolerance or drought tolerance, um, different climates around New Zealand, so that we can maintain our status as a really high-end producer of agriculture because we we have been uh, we've been at the forefront of agricultural technology uh, and unfortunately now our laws are in place that are holding us back and other countries are starting to um, outcompete us which is a bit of a problem um, so that's that's one area would i'd love to see it uh, the other areas around the biotech industry um, there's some really cool stuff we can do when we're engineering enzymes um, so enzymes are little uh, biological machines that can do pretty much anything uh, and the more we engineer those uh, the more applications we can have you'll find enzymes in your laundry detergent um, you'll find them uh, in your food processing um, there's also some really interesting applications we've seen um, applying them to breaking down plastics and plastic pollution is a massive issue that we're facing. So a lot of that stuff would be really neat to have in New Zealand, but because of our laws, it's quite prohibitive and difficult to get around that regulation to actually do the science there. So is that's that, another area. Is that is that primarily because politicians just don't know anything about this stuff? Because I, yeah, I barely, um, <laughs> I barely see this stuff mentioned at all, right? I mean, yep, you've yep. said before that we're usually at the forefront when it comes to agriculture, but this is something that yeah. doesn't really get talked about. No, um, it doesn't, and it's because it was a really hot issue uh, in the early two thousands. Um, like there was protests, there were there was a massive uh, reaction to it, um, and that scared a lot of politicians from going there, um, and so now they like to keep quiet about it and because both our Labour and National and the Greens um, really aren't motivated to change it they don't want to make noise and if they're not making noise then the media is not paying attention um, yeah so I think it's one of those cases where uh, some political parties are just a little bit too scared of quite a small minority that is has been very vocal in the past now we've seen that the technology has changed. Um, it's got a lot better. It's got a lot safer. Um, and so we should be at a space where we need to review that and update that. Um, but 
like you said, where we haven't heard much, we haven't seen much. I'm the only part, like I'm the only genetic engineering or, or gene editing spokesperson across any party uh, that I'm aware of, right? So it's not an issue that uh, anyone else really in the other political areas are picking up on. But it is something I would imagine would be quite hard to try and teach someone. Like if you were to give Jacinda yeah. a crash course in... Oh, she, oh she'd kill <laughs> it. Have you, yeah, I mean, like she on... I think she is one of the few that would genuinely knock it out of the park. Um, to be honest, uh, Todd Muller, I, w- I had high hopes in the brief moment that he was appointed because his previous role was working for Zespri. Um, and so he was aware of our agriculture. Um, and so I was really quite hopeful when he was leader for a moment that we might see some movement on gene editing because he has a bit of that agricultural background. Um, but Obviously, Todd Muller did not come to fruition um, through, through uh, largely his own doing there. So, um, but yeah, and, and, and I think this is also systematic of who our politicians are, right? We, when you look at who's actually in parliament, we don't have many scientists. Um, we have a couple there, um, so Ayesha Viral, and I'm forgetting the national um, doctor as well uh, for a moment, it's eluding uh, me. But so we have a couple, uh, but they're mostly in the medical profession as well. Um, there's not really many actual just scientists um, or people have come through with you know genetics and biochemistry that kind of training and so i think that's why then it's not getting much uh much airtime on the national level uh, but clearly it's it's an important thing um so yeah it's i think we need some change in there so you did mention before about plastic eating in enzymes mm. so how does that actually work give me a breakdown of how this actually works how would you awesome. so how, how how would you construct it to stop plastic pollution excellent so the, the the basic premise here is life finds a way right so whenever you provide life with some kind of food source and usually food is carbon uh life will start growing and it will do this kind of no matter what you do <laughs> um, you may have noticed this if you leave food out for too long or, or just anything like that right like life starts growing when we started pumping plastic into the oceans and things like that it, it seemed fairly, uh, you know, non-biodegradable and all of that and taking forever to break down. Uh, but eventually life found a way and some microbes started living predominantly on this plastic. Uh, they weren't very good at it, but they did have um, some machines within them, some enzymes that were able to start eating up at that plastic. And then some scientists sampled this and found these enzymes and go, ah, they've got the basic machine, right? They've got kind of the right components to actually start attacking this plastic because plastic is just a string of carbons. Um, You know, it's packaged up a little differently. It originally did come from other animals, right? Or plants um, and bacteria that get compressed into oil, the oil that gets made into plastic, right? So it's all living stuff. Um, Obviously, a lot of chemical processes in between, but you have these bacteria that are living on it. So then we can find out how they're living on it. We find those enzymes. And then once you've got that basic machine, even if it's really crappy, which the first ones were, you can then start enhancing it. You can start selecting for it. You can do some really fun experiments where you introduce mutations into that machine and you see which mutations help that machine work faster or which ones slow it down. And then you can keep selecting for faster and faster. And the last I looked, they're about 10 times quicker than the original machine. So you now have this tiny little machine, this enzyme that's able to eat at that plastic at quite a rapid rate. And the kind of a rate now where they're approaching actually eating an entire Coke bottle in a day type thing. 
Um, and there's some companies in France that are making the most of this and are doing a big biotech spin-off where they're not just um, recycling plastic, they're also producing plastics with built-in enzymes so that after it's been thrown away, it will degrade itself without the need for that um, extra processing, um, which is kind of, it, it changes the whole game, right? Because half the difficulty in recycling is actually collecting up the recycling in the first place. It takes a lot of effort. There's a huge amount of sorting that goes on. Um, you know, you can't actually recycle a lot of really small items because um, the sorting machines aren't good enough at the moment to detect them. So I think we can gain an awful lot by moving into this biotech space by allowing scientists to really have at it, have at this program, adequately fund it and go, this is a big problem. We need to tackle it. Um, and I think biotechnology with genetic engineering is, is going to be huge in that space. So how do you account for possible side effects? Of, yeah so the great thing about happening. yeah 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 um the great thing about using enzymes is that they aren't able to make more of themselves right so they're they just the endpoint machine um you're not releasing any organism uh into the environment at that in that way and so that enzyme will will chug along for a while and then eventually it will just stop working it will break down as well um so and I think like the worst that would happen is that you would have a small amount of enzyme of you know on things it would be the same as laundry detergent or something like that effectively um, and that it will just wash away and eventually get broken down and so there's not with something like the plastic solution there's not a lot of risk of of what if um, but I can see in other areas that there is legitimate concern you know what if we release something and possibly one of the biggest and most controversial applications of gene editing would be in pest control so have you heard much about gene drives and, and the, the potential applications there? Yeah, um, particularly on possums, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is a really interesting idea um, where we could take possums and make them infertile or make particularly one half of them, so make males infertile, say, um, or, or males carry sperm that will make other males infertile. So that when they breed, their offspring will be born, all of those males will then carry the gene that'll produce more infertile males. And so you eventually only have females being produced and then the whole colony collapse or the whole population collapses. I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it. It's a little bit technical where you get um, some, uh, effectively one copy goes in, but it copies itself across um, to make sure that both copies um, each organism is carrying will be mutated so that you then get spread through the population. Um, but the basic idea here is that we can use um, a genetic technology to wipe out an entire population of a species, which is terrifying when you say it like that. And it should be terrifying and we should be very cautious about using this kind of technology, but it is a potential application and it is something that we need to be thinking about if we want to achieve predator-free New Zealand. Um, and the flip side of not doing these kind of things is that we will also have mass extinction events in New Zealand, but it will be our native species, our birds and our things like that. <clears throat> Uh, that will right. be going extinct so it's it's a tricky um delicate thing there are species which it's less risky in um and it depends a little bit on what you mean by risk there um so wasps is another one where the uh, wasps are a massive invasive species in new zealand and they cause millions of dollars of damage um every year and we don't have uh well and we are able to there's researchers working on projects now that will be able to selectively uh, gene edit these wasps, they hope, if they do the research, um, and that will then 
wipe out the population of wasps in New Zealand, or at least get it down to very manageable levels. Um, and that's really desirable because wasps kill our native birds, they kill our native insects, they're a really big menace, and nobody really likes wasps. They're pointy and stingy. Um, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not that friendly uh, face um, like a, a possum can be. Um, most of my experiences with possums have not been friendly. Um, but, you know, they're not cute and fuzzy. So I think ah, there's, okay. yeah. And I think one of the, the hurdles there is actually getting the research done in the first place. Um, so part of it is actually funding this research and going, is it possible? Because currently we think it's possible, uh, but we won't actually know unless we get that research adequately funded. So say in a place like Australia, where they've got a massive problem with the ecosystem that's being affected by cane mm. toads. I'm not sure if you know mm. much about the cane mm. toads, right? Where they introduced uh, it's them. It's enormously, inv- yeah, 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 which they introduced to try and get rid of the cane beetle, which was an epic fail. So now you've got massive amounts of them. Yep. Um, yep. So that that could be one way of trying to get rid of the the cane toads since they have no predators really yeah i I haven't looked specifically into that application um but it is definitely that kind of idea where if we can utilize this and especially something which isn't that mobile um so like there's a low chance of it getting out to other countries right because any invasive species usually has a home country where it's actually important in its, in its uh, ecology, right? So in New Zealand, we wouldn't want the possums that we have gene edited to get back to Australia. Um, the cane toad, did they come from South Africa? I'm trying to recall. South Africa or uh, South America? So, one of the, yeah, one one of of the South A's. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just ringing a bell. I was like, wow, it's somewhere over there. Right, you wouldn't want that to get back to that original country. And so that's where we do need to be a bit cautious. Um, the few applications that have happened so far have been in mosquitoes. Um, and mosquitoes are really neat in that only the females sting you. And so through the gene drive technology, they've made it so that the males will mate with the females and then produce only males. And so that way there's no stinging population and the whole population collapses. Um, And the result of that has been a massive drop in dengue fever, yellow fever, a lot of these tropical diseases that are caused by those uh, mosquitoes. And so because of that, you you have huge health outcomes. And it's also one specific species out of 26 different mosquitoes that live in the area. So you're still keeping the ecosystem in balance. You're just shifting the proportion of disease-causing mosquitoes down so that other mosquitoes can still be around and and, and be happy. Right. Yeah, I think there's... Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff around this. Yeah, because you can get into some pretty deep conversation with this. So say, so say, <laughs> like, so I know. And please, please pull me back if I start going too deep. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I love this stuff. Job, so sorry. say, for example, yeah. so I know obviously there's been talks about changing uh, some of the grass or what cows eat, right, to try and prevent uh, more methane being produced in yep. it. Yeah. So if you were to alter, say, some grass and it mm. worked in conjunction with creating uh, lesser methane levels. But could it do something within the cow that maybe upsets its gut bacteria or something? So it could, theoretically, this is worst case scenario, do something to the milk. Let's do a worst case. Yeah, yeah. So do something to the milk and then we drink the milk and it contains something and then you could end up with something like COVID, for example. Right, right. This is just me. Yeah, let's, let's go off the wall. As wild as we can get. So first and foremost, anything that we do 
uh, still has to go through the food health and safety, right? So right. anything that you do genetically, so like even if we change all the laws and we say, right, tomorrow the, everything is, we have, we have a purge, but on gene editing. Um, is, it, is it the purge the movie where all, all laws become... No, you can like do anything hours. for 12 hours. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, anything yeah. for 12, yeah. 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 So, so we have that and we go, right, scientists go, go bananas. <laughs> Honestly, we'll take way more than 12 hours. <laughs> we, we need a year. <laughs> um, but say we do that, right, and people go totally crazy and, and you know, all of that. But the food laws, the food health and safety stuff is still there and that's shared between New Zealand and Australia. So anything coming to market that people are going to eat needs to go through that food, uh, food safety testing. So that, that's number one. Number two is that when we do these gene editing things, because we understand a reasonable amount of the genetics, we can, um, part of our, our top policy actually is requiring genomes to be submitted so that you can go actually prove that you've made the edits you think you have. So in the case of the cows, we're going right, prove that you've, or at least prove in the, in the grass that you've done what you think you have. Um, and for us, what we're saying is you're able to change kind of stuff within the organism so the grass can produce more of a particular type of fat that it usually produces a little bit of now it will just produce more of that um, and then the cows will eat that that means they're getting a fattier diet which means it's easier for them to break it down that means the cows will produce less methane um, and that means when we then drink their milk or eat the beef we're having a smaller impact on climate change so that's right. kind of the the mechanism but if we were to do more crazy things we go right actually we want this grass to produce this entirely new compound that we think will help cows you know get massive we then put it through the whole gauntlet of what we can and we're at a stage now with biology right we we know largely the kinds of organisms that can exist so you know whether we've got bacteria or viruses or fungi or animals right we've mapped out a reasonable amount of the kinds of things that exist plenty of things we don't know but there, we've kind of got an idea of what kind of life is. We also have the ability to pick up what kind of molecules exist. And so we can pick up if there are new things, right? So if there's a new, a genuine new compound in the grass that we weren't able to see before, we have mechanisms of discovering that through things like mass spectrometry. And so we could also check and go, right, have you actually made something new here or is it just different levels of what we had before? And if we're just dealing with different levels of what we had before, all right, we'll do the safety test to make sure that's not suddenly a lethal dose of something, right? Because everything has a lethal dose eventually, chocolate as well. Um, right? If you eat enough of something, it will go badly. So we can, we, but we can do those studies. We can go, yep, is it, is it beyond a reasonable safety threshold or not? Um, will it produce a brand new virus or something like that unless we're deliberately trying to? No. Um, that's kind of a little bit too... Uh, unrealistic um, nature will continue to throw them at us um, and i would also point out that it is because of gene editing um, that we were able to combat the the virus that nature did throw at us um, so through the COVID response it has been genetically modified enzymes that are used in all of our tests um, so anytime you go get a COVID test that will be using genetically modified enzymes in order to detect um, the, the COVID uh, rna and it will also be used in a lot of the production of the vaccines so while the vaccines themselves are not genetically modified organisms, we are using you know, these gene editing techniques to turn out these vaccines that are enormously safe um, in a time frame that has never been seen before. You know, we've gone from sequence to here's a vaccine in less than a year, and that is just mind-bogglingly fast. So I think 
yes, there is always a, a chance a, a, that something crazy and wild happens, um, but that is also true of doing nothing at all. Uh, you can sit around and do nothing and crazy wild things can happen. So, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a zero chance anything. Um, but once you get past that, I think we can see that on balance, it will be uh, much safer than a lot of other things that we are currently doing that are unregulated. Um, and also it leads to a lot of the solutions of the things that nature is throwing at us. You mentioned about the COVID vaccine, which I think is a good segue because sure. I know people that are very yep. anti-vaccines. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, you know, I've heard everything from they carry poison in them to janola yep. to microchips. Yeah. Yep. What can you say to those people? As a scientist, right. um, you understand this better than me and probably every single person <laughs> that is anti-vaccines. So, I mean, first of all, I'd say that the Right. It's it's I want to say that it's it's reasonable to question things. Right. I my basic place of, of where I, wherever I start is I question things. Right. That's why I became a scientist. Because I mean, how does that work? I want to know. Um, and, I, and I wanted to keep asking those questions. So first of all, good on you for asking questions. Right. That's a good space to start with. And the second thing is we really need to establish what you're going to consider as evidence. Right. So any person that I've talked to who's been at all involved in some kind of conspiracy or, or that is you know, questioning authority, there's a point at which you go, I'm not accepting what I'm being told and I'm instead believing this other piece of information. And what I really want you to do, if you are someone who is anti-vax or, or who is you know, or just fact skeptical, skeptical is going, why are you valuing that information over this information, right? Because there's some kind of competing information there and one of them is winning out. And it's probably not the one that's come from a reputable source, but you don't believe it's a reputable source. So it doesn't really matter if I say, hey, actually it's safe, let's go. Cause you're gonna go, well, you're just part of that mechanism. You know, you're politically aligned, maybe it's for, right? So, and, and so I think, you know, you gotta ask what counts as evidence. Cause as soon as you go, what counts as evidence, great. We can have a discussion. We can build up a framework within the evidence that you will accept or not. So I know people that are anti-vax because they don't like the idea of fetal cells being, or fetal stem cells being used in vaccine production. Cool. The new vaccines don't do that because they're RNA based. Some people don't like RNA vaccines because it's new and experimental. You go, yes, it is new. In that case, great. We have other vaccines that aren't new or using new technology. And I think that's a great reason to have multiple vaccines to go, if you're uncomfortable with that, I mean, personally, I'm way more comfortable with the RNA vaccines than the other ones. I think the RNA vaccine technology is so cool. Um, but regardless, it's not about me, right? So, so if you're uncomfortable with a particular kind of vaccine technology, I think it's really good in New Zealand. Well, I would like the government to do more of offering multiple different vaccines because we know they're all a very high level of uh, effic efficacy. And we do have at least two different vaccines approved. One of them is an mRNA vaccine. The other one is a modified adenovirus vaccine. So we do have two different technologies uh, being used. If you don't like the idea of vaccine in general, that's a little more difficult to engage with um, because they are enormously successful. Um, or if you're in a position where you're just going, well, I just don't like, you know, I think COVID's a hoax or, or, or any of that kind of stuff. I would just, that gets really tricky to even engage with because you're, you're, you're dealing with a level of not believing anything that's kind of put out. Um, and so me saying anything, I don't think really has an impact there. Um, but yeah, I mean, like if you want a general rundown of how the vaccines work, happy to give that as well. 
Uh, but in, in terms of engaging with people who are really skeptical, that's kind of my message is figure out why you're skeptical in the first place. Um, yeah, because I mean, there's a lot of stuff and and most of it, like I I visit the the subreddit, the conservative subreddit, um, New Zealand conservative subreddit fairly often. Um, and there's a lot of anti-vax stuff there. And I've engaged a wee bit. Um, there are some people who will listen to evidence who you can have a good chat to. Um, and you do, you do change minds that way. I think there are also people who are deliberately putting out propaganda because they want to destabilize, um, particularly the West, to, to get a little conspiratorial myself. I think there are nations that are moving um, and using misinformation in a weaponized way uh, in geopolitics. And we're seeing a lot of misinformation coming out of certain countries, um, particularly attacking certain kinds of vaccines, which have been produced by the West and not um, in their own uh, countries of origin. And so I think that's a, a tricky thing to combat um, where we, we have genuine bad faith actors, not just Kiwis who are a bit skeptical. Because um, most Kiwis who I've met who are a bit skeptical, who go, oh, maybe not that one, or I don't really like the government, or it's all Jacinda's fault. Um, those ones, I think, genuinely, <laughs> hey, we were down in the polls, and now suddenly there's a lockdown. What do you know? Huh? Coincidence? Um, no, it's only like, like, yeah, it's, it's this technology is really safe. We have, uh, it's rolled out now to, to millions and millions of people globally. Um, we aren't seeing people just fall over in the street from it. We are seeing them being protected from COVID. And so we can see, and we can be fairly certain that this is a good and safe move. Um, I will sign up as soon as I'm allowed. I'm only 30, so it'll be a while <laughs> before I um, am allowed my vaccine. Um, if anything, I'm annoyed at, at the slowness. Um, Although in the grand scheme of things, if we were more equitable with our vaccines, I think we maybe wouldn't have as many variants uh, to be dealing with. Uh, but that's a whole different conversation around what, what the best vaccine strategy is. Yeah. So can you explain to me how they're able to fast track it so quickly? Because this, this is probably the common yep. criticism that I get that they haven't Absolutely. spent enough time testing it. There could be long term yep. effects. Yeah, um, that's so long-term effects all right, all right, we'll, we'll go with that one. So the fast tracking is, um, so usually you have, right, so you're going to take a certain amount of time to, sorry, my hand's going blurry into my background there. Um, <laughs> it's going to take a certain amount of time to figure out what will be effective in the first place, right? And so before RNA vaccines and before all of that, it takes a long time to figure out what kind of bits of a virus are important to target, right? So that's step one, right? You've got a new virus, what on earth is unique to this virus that we can then use to always identify it? With SARS-CoV-2, there was a SARS-CoV-1, right? There was, there was um, SARS. And so we had about 10 years worth of research that went on identifying the spike protein, understanding kind of the overall uh, shape of what the coronavirus was doing and trying to produce vaccines against that. So we actually had about 10 years worth of research going on that when we saw this was a new coronavirus, we were able to very, very quickly identify the region that we needed to target, right? And so we identified that spike protein within kind of weeks, it was insanely fast. So then you know what you need to target. We then use the RNA vaccine technology. Now this technology has also been being researched for decades, uh, particularly in the cancer space. Um, it was hopefully, well, it was hoped to be used to combat cancer therapy. So um, priming your immune system against cancers in your own body, because it's so hard uh, for your body to distinguish what is 
you and what is cancer when cancer has come from you in the first place. But anyway, the, the short of that is that we, again, have decades worth of research going into this kind of technology. This was just an opportunity to actually use that. So you know the sequence that you need to target. You've got a way of making that into a vaccine very quickly. And so you had the first kind of uh, prototype vaccines rolled off the production line um, very, very quickly. You then can do your phase one trials. And so already we've saved probably five to 10 years worth of research time um, because it had been going on with a similar but different virus. And so then we can just kind of jump that in. So we're, we're at the stage we've got our test fire vaccine. And to be honest, many, many countries all around the world were very keen on producing their own. And yes, economics comes into it. The reason we haven't got vaccines for many other things is because it's not economically viable. But when you have a global pandemic, every pharmaceutical wants to make one. Um, and so they did. And so part of it is the reason it goes so quickly is because there was so much money um, to be put into this. And so that's a huge reason why this has gone faster than other things. Um, recruitment to get, so, so once we've got our vaccine, we're now going into phase trials, recruiting patients um, and recruiting people for these trials is also much easier when you have a really large active infection going on, right? So New Zealand would be absolutely useless to test our vaccines because we have so few cases that it's so hard to know if your vaccine's been effective or you just have a closed border and the virus is never getting in. When you have a raging and active pandemic in all over the world, so Brazil particularly and in America and you kind of like many, many countries, it's very easy then to recruit people and to see if they're getting infected or not because people around them will be and they won't be. So part of that is also being able to do that. And also all of the administrative stuff that you often spend months waiting for things to happen, you can compress that time an awful lot and go, we're not actually going to you know, wait for all this and we're not going to put it to the bottom of a very long queue and look at it in a year's time. It's going to happen right now because everything depends on it. So there's not a lot of, um, there's not lost steps. There's steps that are happening all at the same time. There's huge incentives to get one. And so that's why it's come out so quick and so fast. And our technology has just come so far um, in terms of how much quick we're able to do this kind of thing. Okay. I mean, we, we were doing things like mass producing the vaccines before they'd finished their trials so that in the event that the trial was successful, we had the vaccine ready to go. Previously, you wouldn't have done that because it was too much of a financial risk. And so there are, there are those really obvious steps where you can go, yeah, if the, if the infection's big enough, if, it's a, if the stakes are high enough, you can stack steps on top of each other. So every step is still taken, but you can take some steps at the same time. Um, and then only once it's finished that, so only once it was over those hurdles of its all its phase trials and it had been rolled out and tested around, I think, 40,000 people was the conclusion of the phase three trials for the Pfizer vaccine that then went out broader. Um, yeah. And so if you want me to keep going, I could go into the long-term question, we, which is I a big wanna, question. I don't want to spend the whole hour or most of the hour talking to you about um, vaccines is <laughs> interesting. It's as right. it, <laughs> it tends to come up. Um, but I mean, I, I would say just quickly on the long-term effects of vaccine that the, we haven't seen. Um, the big question is what's a greater risk, the long-term effects of COVID or the long-term effects of the new vaccines. Um, mm. And it is very clear that there are, there are greater risks from long-term COVID infections um, and that we are studying and that we are seeing that there are some very serious uh, effects that are happening um, long-term in the brain as well as um, in, in respiratory systems. And so 
there is evidence there that is showing up. We aren't seeing evidence showing up on the vaccine side of things. And so on balance, given especially how infectious these Delta variants and the, the latter variants are, it seems that unless we are vaccinating, it is almost inevitable um, that eventually those infections will happen. And so you have to ask yourself, what's more likely to go wrong? Absolutely, um, getting COVID is more likely to be damaging long-term uh, than the vaccine is, and there's no evidence so far that long-term issues will arise. There's nothing that lingers in your body um, from a vaccine, especially an mRNA vaccine. Uh, there's zero trace of it other than the antibodies that it's left um, after um, about a month total. So in terms of the possibility of long-term effects, it's really, really low that something could happen. Again, I'm a scientist, I'm not going to say 0% um, because it's far too certain to say anything is, is 0%. There's not even a 0% chance that we'll be here tomorrow and asteroid could hit or something. Actually, I think we've got that mapped out. So probably probably a 0% chance of an asteroid tomorrow. I'm willing to say that. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Now, I want to go back to the whole gene editing thing because that's that can be used to treat, say, um, diabetes or probably, yeah. I imagine, like, autoimmune diseases to some extent? Yeah, um, it depends exactly on what it is. Autoimmune disease is a, a, a tricky, um, and I do have to be clear, I'm not a medical doctor here, um, but yeah, autoimmune diseases are kind of a, a body not able to self or recognize what is itself and what isn't. Um, and I, it's not quite a good, can well, it's, I'm not aware of it as a candidate for gene therapy at the moment, um, but that could just because I haven't read all that research. Uh, but definitely things like diabetes and getting different cells to produce your insulin instead of the ones that have been destroyed. Um, that's an area that's being actively researched. Uh, things like cystic fibrosis is another area um, that's, that's actively being researched. So anywhere you have a single gene um, that is non-functioning um, and particularly a single gene that's non-functioning in a select group of cells in your body becomes a really good target for gene therapy. Um, which is really interesting, um, where you might be able to, you know, actually fix the underlying cause of the disease instead of having ongoing treatments. What about stuff when it comes to the brain, like say bipolar or schizophrenia? Because that's more Those brain, things, but is it linked to a gene at all? Yeah, so um, not not obviously. It, it's not. I think currently it's not known that there's like single gene determinants that will give you schizophrenia or give you bipolar. Right. Okay. Um, there may be genetic, genetic predispositions. Um, I think I've, I've, I haven't looked into those two. I've looked a little bit into depression and there are some uh, inheritance patterns. So you see it kind of following in families a wee bit, which is where you start to suspect that there's genetic elements. Um, but identifying exact genes that are involved gets really tricky. Um, it gets even trickier because your genes interact with your environment a huge amount, and especially for mental health uh, issues, a lot of it is environmental. Um, so there's a huge amount of um, kind of environment that plays into it. So uh, at this stage, I would be reluctant to, to put forward any solid argument that we should do gene therapy for uh, mental uh, health issues. But just particularly because, I, I mean, I haven't done the research in this area, so I'm going to just plead ignorance on that one and go, um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's also just very complex genetics going on, um, if there is anything there. Yeah, yeah, because obviously genes is different to, like, say, the neural network of the brain, and some people yeah. are starting, and there's research coming out that the gut is kind of its own neural network. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I suppose the intertwining of genes within, um, compared to, say, gut bacteria and all of that. Yeah. 
so i mean like it's it's the the gut microbiome gets really interesting and in that it it does have an effect on on your overall health and and um I think areas where you could point to is that actually having a healthy gut biome is very good for you. Um, probiotics and in particular, selecting the right kind of um, biome for your gut and then using that therapeutically is in a really interesting space. Um, I know that there's uh, research going on in fecal tra transplants and things like that. For yeah, people yeah. I just I, I had another example on the show talking about that and I yeah. was like completely stunned. I was like, wait, fecal transplant? Yeah. Yeah. It seems, seems a bit uh, it's yep, real it bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't don't home homebrew that one. All right. It does not go well. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing to self-treat you with. There were some cases. Uh it wasn't good. Um so well they so remove that... they remove the bad bacteria first and then something well, to well, do they, with they... Inj inject the good bacteria or something along those lines. That was yeah, my understanding it, of it. Particularly right? it's finding healthy donors is a really key point. Um so you need to start off with a healthy sample. Um and it's not that they just yeah, literally transfer poop. Um <laughs> but so, like, yeah, but, yeah, but what, it what... is. It, Sorry, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, you know, uh, as, as I say, it just highlights how important, um, you know, that the considering the bigger picture and the ecosystems going on, but also that those things can be manipulated and that we can actually solve some underlying issues by by addressing their root cause, which is in nature. Um, and we have technology now that lets us investigate that. Um, there are other other applications like the Bliss probiotics. Um, was this, uh, so it's a antibiotic, it's a, a probiotic. So it's literally just bacteria that that you can apparently really helps with sore throats and things like that, um, because it changes the biome uh, in your throat. I don't, I can't vouch for it. I haven't done my research. I just know it has come out of Otago, and I've I've heard some talks by the dude. Um, so it's the same kind of thing where, you know, the biome is starting to play a bigger part, and actually, you know, getting better biomes um, seems like a reasonable area to look into. So with something like diabetes, like obviously mm. you can edit a gene, but when would it be more yep. applicable to do gene editing as opposed to uh, as a pro, uh, opposed to um, something that involves resetting gut bacteria, right? Because obviously yep. diabetes is usually caused from uh, it can be from bad diet and and all of that jazz. Yeah. So there's, there's so a wouldn't it be best different... to reset that first before you even attempt any gene editing? It would really so so with diabetes specifically i think it's way less about the gut bacteria and it's entirely about your insulin signaling um so there's a couple of different types of uh, of diabetes um effectively you can either lose the ability to produce insulin um, or you lose the ability to sense insulin and losing the ability to sense insulin is really um tricky um, if you lose the ability to produce insulin, you can then substitute with synthetic insulin, which is what happens uh, for most diabetics. And so um, that's that's really useful. Um, yes, getting your diet under control is really important. Um, your gut biome within that is not going to have as much of an impact uh, rather than actually just making sure your overall carbohydrate intake gets monitored. 
Um, so effectively with diabetes, um, you're not able to sense the sugar in your blood. Your sugar gets into your blood by eating it. Um, and it comes from sugars, obviously, uh, but also from carbohydrates. As they get broken down, they get broken down into sugar to go into your blood to eventually get taken out. And so anytime you eat carbohydrates, you get a, um, you get a spike in your blood sugars. Um, and then in healthy individuals, you will get that go back down again because your liver will go, oh, hey, we've got a lot of blood sugar here. Let's go take it out. We'll package it up. Either turn it into a glycogen which is um, a carbohydrate storing your muscles used for explosive exercise, or it'll get turned into um, lipids and fats and then get stored away. So that's a healthy individual. In an unhealthy individual or in diabetes, you're not going to get that same removal of the blood sugar, and so it stays permanently high. And so without it actually being taken out of the bloodstream, what's going to happen is it will slowly glycosylate, or it's going to get added on to the proteins in your blood, which can cause damage. Um, and it's also one of the ways that we detect diabetes as we look at um, where the glucose molecules or the sugar molecules have been added on to your various proteins in your blood. And we go, ah, yours are unusually high. There's probably something going wrong with the removal of sugar from your blood. So how, so, long, yeah, I, how, how long in the process would it be before you'd even attempt gene editing when it comes to so, something such as diabetes? Yeah, that would be at the point where you have you're no longer just insensitive to, so, so you kind of you're at the point where you're genuinely not producing insulin or you're not detecting it. That's the point where you would. When you just have prolonged, elevated, or it's just not quite responding as well as you could, you're still in a transitional period where you have the possibility of reversing that. Obviously, if you're, um, I, I get my type one, type two run the wrong way, but but you know it's for some causes of diabetes, it's actually genetic from birth, and so for those cases, gene therapy right away, right? You're going actually we we have a genetic deficiency here. That is why we don't have uh, the proper insulin signaling, and so that's immediately when we would uh, go in for the gene therapy. Right. So how would you avoid a situation? Again, worst case scenario is mm. um, a gene is edited or you mm. um, replace it, or you include some new gene. Yeah. How do you prevent a chain reaction which could potentially destroy the entire body? Obviously, worst case scenario. All right, all right. Okay, so uh, you would first of all check if it was in remotely possible for a chain reaction to happen. Um, so say we're doing insulin, what we're doing is we're replacing or we're, we're activating a certain group of cells to produce insulin that weren't doing it before. Um, we'd look at what that change could be. We'd run uh, extensive trials looking at populations of cells in, in the lab and go, is, is this possible to go wrong? You know, What will happen when we do this? And it's through that testing that you will find that out. And then you'll, so the current health system if you want to approve a medicine, something like gene therapy, you then recruit people for phase one trials. And this is where you would do kind of the first tentative step. And there would always be some risk involved in that step, um, but that will tell you, hey, did this go well for, for a small group of people before we roll it out wider? So there's always some steps of, we'll try it with just a few, uh, particularly something like gene editing, we'll definitely try it in animal models, they have DNA just like we do. Um, and so it's, it's a very, very good step to put in there and go, okay, can we cure diabetes in a mouse this way? Oh, look, we can. That's really promising. You know, what, what other effects were there? And we have the technology to see if there were any off-target effects. So most of the gene therapy concerns are around potential off-targets. So you're hoping to correct this one gene, but it might hit this one over here because they look really similar. 
we look for that and we have the technology where we can detect that down to a really, really tiny level. So you'd see any kind of off targets that are happening there. And you can put that through the animal testing. Um, and so we can kind of get a really good idea before we even get into people, whether it will happen in human cells and whether it will happen in an animal, and then you're just changing the animal out. Um, and so you've really limited it to the, the range of things that can go wrong gets a lot narrower. Um, and then you're really looking at worst case scenario, what if it's ineffective, as usually the worst case scenario is nothing happens um, there. Okay. Because um, there would never be cases where an immune system would attack itself. What is it, a cytokine storm, I think it's called? Yeah. So cytokine storm is when you yeah, you get a kind of a cascade and an overreactive immune system. Um, with something like uh, the gene editing that we're proposing, because we would be making small changes or changes well then you wouldn't be putting something else foreign in um, it will be very very difficult for the body to misidentify what is itself um, in that situation so i think it would it would depend a wee bit on what the specific application was um, but that will be a low uh, chance event but yeah i think we're getting like slightly further outside of my expertise so i'll be a lot cagier with my language when i talk about yeah, um, how yeah. certain i am about about uh, events like this um but for most of the gene editing and gene therapy things that uh we're looking at um yeah the chance of immune immune system rejection um if we're dealing with things that were like just tweaking the things that are already there then it's a very low chance that you get an immune reaction to that right so how is CRISPR? change the game in terms of gene editing oh it's everything CRISPR is everything so <laughs> i paint a little picture um i was in my my third year of my my biochemistry degree i was going into my honors year i did a summer studentship over the um so you like over summer they'll give you like a 10-week project it was funded by bill and melinda gates um foundation and with a, my supervisor was looking at a particular protein it was called a homoendonuclease and it was going to be the next big thing because it was so specific and it's targeting it could target like 10 or 15 base pairs um, and that meant that you had really sorry, base pairs of dna so it had like really good recognition of dna and then it will make a cup and that was going to be huge for gene editing and what it could do CRISPR came along and just blew that out of the water and said, nah, we can do 20, 30 base pairs, whatever you want. Our recognition is near perfect. It's super adaptable. We can change pretty much whatever we want. So for CRISPR-Cas9 systems have revolutionized biology in a huge way. Um, they're now the go-to way that we manipulate DNA um, pretty much across organisms. Um, so yeah, they're, they're fantastic. It's, we never had that level of precision before. Um, we did in some uh, organisms, but never kind of across organism, across kingdom like we do now. So how much yeah. how much time does it save? Like if, uh, if, if means, you're, yeah. In, in terms so, of if you could get down into specifics, like if you were to do yeah. something the previous way compared to now, yeah. like how much so, time does it actually save? In my PhD, I wanted to see, um, I, I did my PhD on, on plants um, and I was looking at pollen development. Uh, I wanted to know whether a certain gene was important in making pollen. And at the time, we didn't have CRISPR-Cas systems set up to investigate that. And so we were able to use a resource that was developed that cost a huge amount of money and took years of work where they randomly knocked out a gene 
and they tried to do it enough times that they hit every gene in the plant and then they kept a huge store of all of these plants. And so that was this massive library of plants. You can go along and you email them and say, hi, I want that one particular one. And then you wait and then it turns up. And so that was a massive project that took millions of dollars and took years and years and years in development. And we got a random mutation that may or may not do something attempting to knock out one of those genes so I could see whether that gene was important. With CRISPR-Cas, we could, in the lab, within a year, design the exact mutation that we want and go, all right, I want to test that. And then a year later, it's done. And that the only reason it takes a year is because the plants take time to grow. So if we did it in other systems, it could be even quicker. If we're dealing with bacteria, you're talking a week in the lab and you can test whether a gene is important or not. So in terms of the time save, it is, it is night and day in terms of what it's enabled especially if you're talking about organisms that aren't that well characterized. So there's lots of research in like mice. People really understand mice. Uh, people really understand fruit flies. Get outside that and things get a little hazy. Um, and so what CRISPR-Cas also enables you to do is work in organisms that weren't previously studied well because you've got this tool that is so powerful and able to um, be adapted very, very readily. Right. So what what's some of the stuff that will be fast-tracked now? as a result of CRISPR? Because there must be Whoa, heaps of stuff that's into work. Just everything. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's harder to say what wouldn't, um, right? Because effectively, we've, we've now got a way to investigate genes that we kind of didn't have before. We can ask how important each base in a gene is by changing it. You can not only tweak that, that at, a, at a low level, just like tweak a gene, you can also provide a template for CRISPR to use and it will swap out genes as well. So you can, um, you really have a lot of power um, to do genetic manipulation. Um, really, it's, 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 like, it's like we're able to actually do what we want with the, with the technology, which is also why our technology needs to catch up because we can now do CRISPR-Cas and we can change a single base and then if someone wants to know whether it's genetically modified or not, it's an honesty game at that point, right? You can, you can do the change and there's no way to detect it. You can just say, oh, no, it, it happened naturally because mutations do happen naturally. And so I think that's one of the, one of the other reasons to bring it back to the uh, political uh, <laughs> uh, overtone of uh, being involved in top and, and trying to push through this legislation is that it's important that we maintain that trust. And it's important that we have a legal framework that understands that we are at a stage where mutations are undetectable, uh, where changes can happen and you go, yeah, there's no evidence left. Previous techniques would have, that they'd, they'd leave kind of scars, so to speak, of where insertions had happened. Um, not the case with CRISPR anymore. It does seem like the genie's out of the bottle though. Wasn't there that Chinese guy that made that, that, that child yep. without what yep. was it, HIV or something? Yeah, so yeah. that was a case which was widely condemned by the scientific community because pretty much globally we're, we're at a stage where we say don't experiment on babies. That's, that's, that should be an easy given. Um, we're not ready yet to do that. Consenting fully grown adults, that's a whole different story. Messing with the germline, we're not, we're not ready to go there. But yes, that Chinese researcher did. Uh, what he did was he knocked out a particular receptor uh, in the children or in the embryos, this is pre-implantation, um, that would then make it harder for HIV to infect those cells. 
Um, and the whole setup was that you had a mother that was HIV positive, and the researcher told this mother, this is the only way you can have children that don't have HIV. Um, and so they were kind of duped into the experiment. It was deeply unethical um, and yeah, largely condemned or widely condemned by the scientific community. But yeah, so they knocked out um, the receptor that HIV binds to um, so that then the egg cells wouldn't be HIV positive. Um, and so then the growing baby would not be HIV positive. There are other ways of stopping HIV transmission through birth that don't need this as well. So it wasn't exactly necessary. Right. So I suppose this child will be monitored for a long time now. Yes. Yeah. To, to um, find were, out what think, the aftermath is. There were, yeah. I think there were twins, I think. I think it was two children that came out of it. Um, yeah. I might be mistaken there. But yeah, so th th they, will be, they will be monitored. Um, they'll see whether or not it was actually successful. Um, there was a bit of ambiguity over that as well. So um, it's, yeah, the genie is somewhat out of the bottle, which is again, a good reason to update the regulation. Um, so Australia has some really interesting legislation, which we have kind of, well, we put out our policy before Australia's changes came through, but it was largely modeled on, on some of their, what their documents were saying, in that they have a level of modification, which does not count as a genetically modified organism. And so that if this mutation could happen naturally, um, then that shouldn't count as a whole different kettle of fish, you know? But if you are putting in whole different genes from across species, then that should be a whole different kettle of fish and, and regulated as such. And so they have um, effectively allowed low level gene edits to go, go out as if it was classical breeding, which maintains uh, regulation on genetic modification more broadly, but does um, allow a lot more room for, for plant breeders and things like that to actually move rapidly and adapt to things like climate change. And part of the with, part of the thing with technology is it evolves so fast that uh, any legislation is out of date, right? So you should well, be actually updating it fairly regularly, but that doesn't seem yeah. to happen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it depends a lot on how you make that regulation as well. So in ours, it was particularly foolish in that the way in which we regulate it is based on the time at which the technology was invented and not what the technology does. Right. So any regulation before 1996, I think is the year, might be 1998. Anyway, any technology pre that date does not count as genetic modification even if it modifies the genome, even if it you know, does all that stuff, that, that's not genetic modification. Anything after that date, technology-wise, is genetic modification. And so we have a situation where you can apply a chemical. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's bonkers. And it gets weirder the more the case law gets into it. So, so you can use a chemical mut mutagen to randomly change as many bases in a genome, and that's not genetically modified, right? That just doesn't... It, it, we used to do that before. It's old technology, so it's not regulated. What? Or okay. you can make a single base change with CRISPR-Cas and it is genetically modified. And so that, that's part of why I'm, I'm like really pushing for this to change is because it, it, it just is biologically nonsensical the way we've written this law. That's so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like, it just sounds so bizarre. So, yeah, yeah so, so it's kind of like saying old school cars, which don't have seat belts, don't have airbags, you have no speed limit. New cars, which have everything, okay, you're not allowed to go more than 10K an hour because we just don't know what might happen. 
yeah, but <laughs> we know an awful lot more and are safer and road deaths are way down. Uh, yeah, it, it's truly bonkers. Yeah, that is so bizarre. I mean, I don't even yeah. know. Well, uh, surely politicians must know this. Surely. No. No, like you said. <laughs> the... <laughs> well, so, I mean... Well, I, so I, I understand, I I understand to... that politicians can't know it all, right? Like they do oh, delegate. They, could, they, could they do more. delegate. They but... could. They could know more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, I would. Yeah. Understand. Well, I would think you'd have at least a basic understanding, and someone would surely come to them. And, well, I guess not. And, I mean, and I advise have, them I've, of this this error. Yeah. So I've um, I've, I've chatted to my two locals. Uh, so so Rachel Brooking and David Clark down here in Dunedin. Um. Rachel Brooking gave me the answer that we we need a good reason to let it in, um, is what she would say about GMOs, and um, and 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 for me it's a real misnomer because we, I mean, the system we have does actually allow us to release things, and we have for um, I think we've got one vaccine which is technically a genetically modified organism that has been released without control. So, spoiler alert: New Zealand is no longer GMO free, right? We have released a GMO organism. It's just really specific and like i don't think there's like virtually any of those vaccines around because it's only used for travel um anyway um so yeah there's there's this idea that oh we are separate from it, it like like it's it's out there but it's not here which is not exactly um true so am i coming through all right just to interrupt yeah. that for a moment i got a yeah. connection unstable thing all right no, 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 no worries no. i'll carry on then yep. um yeah, and so so that was Rachel Brooking's answer. Um, but she's very fresh in Parliament. This is her first year in, um, and she's mostly coming in from RMA law reform, which I commend. It needs to happen. So I really hope she does do a good job there. Um, David Clark, our regular um, MP down here, who is the elected one. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a couple conversations with him, and and it's just there's not an interest in it uh, from politicians, and so they're not really getting it. And scientists as well aren't that good at being vocal in the political area. Um, they they tend to be a little shy about getting political. Um, and when they do, things can get a little ugly. Um, so I'm kind of a, a little bit of an anomaly in how willing I am to go public and and political. And I mean, part of that is, is because I can do it with top, right? If I think if I was with another party, it would be much harder. But top has, You'd be has that evidence brand. Mm. Um, yeah, like top has that evidence brand and it's kind of neutral. So so like labor bros don't hate us. Top bros, oh, sorry, uh, uh, national bros don't hate us, right? Like, like labor and national, the two big dogs don't really care or, or have animosity towards us. The greens despise us, but that's a whole separate issue. Um, <laughs> so like it's, it's, there's this, there's not it feels like a fairly neutral party to to come in and say hey as a scientist this is me politically i can be like okay, okay so you're with the top does that mean as like, that means what the evidence says um you know but like by and large it doesn't actually come down hardly left or right so you don't get a lot of that cross animosity and we're very explicit in our willingness to to work with either side we, we kind of we're very much, we just want to get shit done. Um, that's kind <laughs> of our, our tagline. Um, and, and part of that is with this gene editing, it's like, yeah, um, uh, well, this is an area which we really need to get done. It's part of why I got involved in politics in the first place. I was at a, at a plant conference and uh, politicians, uh, sorry, the, the scientists there were going, it's so annoying, why aren't the politicians listening? And I was like, why don't why don't we just start our own party and we just have this as, as its thing? And then um, I got in contact with... Um, 
I didn't get in contact with Gareth Morgan. Uh, it was after that when we were with Jeff Simmons and Jeff was like, yeah, you know what? Write a policy, let's go. Um, and then that, that was it. I was with Top, I was there, um, completely sold. Um, and then, yeah, and, and the more I've looked into them, you know, obviously being a candidate for them in 2020 um, and the housing crisis coming to its absolute peak um, and the universal basic income, so like some really great policy um, that's kept me in top. That is, I think, fairly uncontentious um, as well, which makes it easier to, to maintain my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's no like defund universities policy, which would make it much harder. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to do of course. Job. If your job is at risk, it would probably be a lot more. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. lot more risky, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah it helps that uh, Top is explicitly pro-science uh, as a science educator. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Final question before uh, I let you go. Now, yeah, absolutely. You, sometimes you hear the saying, ignorance is bliss, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in the case, because you know so much, right, if you get sick or something happens, do you automatically go to worst case scenario in your head? You start thinking, oh, no. maybe I have this or maybe no, I should do um, this. I, I am a chronic Googler. Um, I do look up things whenever I can. Um, but I, I have do a that. really good hit rate at actually nailing the diagnosis, um, which I'm a little bit proud of, especially with a young kid, right? Like I'm frequently like, like they'll get ill. I'm like, okay, right, we're gonna figure out what this is. And the thing is that actually what I do is I go, what's the most likely, right? Not not what's worse, what's what's most likely. Um, and I am a bit of an optimist overall. And so I'm going, yeah, it's probably this. Um, I kicked a, um, a, my fire around the other day I looked I was like oh, I think it's broken I'm like I'm fairly certain um, you know pain didn't go away after 20 minutes I was like yeah it's getting that nice coloration um, then we go to the, the doctor and he takes one looks like yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's, think it's broken I'm like yes nailed it I mean pain <laughs> but yes I got it right yes. yeah, so no no but for me um, I'm more of a a the most likely situation rather than the rarest uh, most worst case Okay, that's yeah. good. That's I also good. Uh, kind of avoided most medically type things in my undergraduate because I was like, I just want to trust the doctor. I just want to, whatever the doc says, I'll go with that. Yeah, because um, you don't ever, you don't ever question them? You don't ever question them? <laughs> now, now I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So like, like that was early and then, you know, we did post-grad um, and now part of my job is is teaching med uh, students. Uh, we teach them med genetics. Um, got a tutorial on tomorrow on that actually. Um, so like it's, it's yeah, I've, I've had to have a huge amount of learning coming into that space as well. Um, mm. And now I do. And it's more, I feel more like a colleague coming into a doctor's office. I don't know if that pisses off my doctor or not, <laughs> but it's, it's like, oh yeah. Um, and so we often, often chat happens and, and, and cause they would have gone through a lot of the stuff that I'm teaching anyway. And, and um, you know, I teach the first year health science papers and things like that. So um, I feel more slightly more like a colleague when I go talk to my doctor than I do like a, a proper patient doctor relationship. But I think it's been it's been an all right change. I'm sure I'm sure they love that. I'm sure they love that. Mm. <laughs> cool. So uh, where can everyone follow you if they want to keep up to date with Everywhere. everything that you're saying um, and all your opinions? Absolutely. And Twitter all your research is probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, for research and science, come and roll at the University of Otago. Um, I teach biochemistry there, so it's a great time. Uh, no, other than that, uh, Twitter, uh, I'm at Ben A. Peters, um, and that's where I have probably my most frequent updates uh, and also the most non-specific. So it's sometimes politics, sometimes science, sometimes whatever I'm feeling at the time. 
Uh, my Facebook page, you can find me as uh, Dr. Ben Peters, top candidate for Dunedin, and uh, do a search for that, I should come up. Um, and there I will fairly infrequently, but post our uh, bigger stuff. Um, otherwise, follow the Opportunities Party themselves. I do um, a lot of writing for them, especially around COVID response stuff at the moment is where our big focus is. So that's um, taking up a significant amount of my time. Um, I am on Instagram, but I only really post pictures of plants that I like. Um, so <laughs> it's, it was meant to be political and I just couldn't think of like good Instagram. I'm terrible at Instagram. I'm just like, oh, well, that's a nice plant. And I just, just put that up. Um, so I, I'm not super active on, on the old Instagram, but I think that's, I am on Reddit as well. Uh, so I, I chime in uh, wherever I can on, on New Zealand subreddits and, and things like that. That's cool. That's cool. And can can anyone watch your lectures outside of the University of Otago? So if I wanted to watch I any of your lectures, could I actually find them, or do I have to? I enroll? don't think you can. Um, I although if you do enroll, I was the one that remade all of the lecture or the, all of the lab demonstration videos. So pretty much for the next twenty years, anyone doing uh, first year biochemistry has to listen to me. Um, and the more we go in lockdown, the more you're going to see me because I was the one acting in all those videos as well. So uh, I am <laughs> forever going to be associated, at least for for a reasonable while, uh, with, with undergrad biochemistry. <laughs> well, cool. Hey Ben, thank you so much for taking time out to do this. Um, I very much no appreciate worries. it. This probably has been one of the most informative podcasts I've done. You, I've definitely learned more in this than probably the last five combined. So wow. uh, thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Reese. It's a uh, high praise. <laughs> no problem. All right. Uh, well, that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And uh, until next time, stay safe. See you later. See ya. See ya.